Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon so that we can take your calls if you want to call in with questions you have about uh, Christianity, about the Bible, about any of that kind of thing. Feel free to give me a call. Our lines are full right now, but I will give out the phone number and you can call in a, a little later. A few minutes from now, lines will open up. The number is 844 5737. That's 844-484-5737. Uh, I should start making announcements right now that in a, a little over a week I'll be uh, I'll be speaking in the Phoenix area. Uh, it doesn't seem like I'm speaking in Phoenix proper, but I'm seeing all around it uh, and all around Phoenix, Scottsdale and uh, you know Gilbert and places like that. Um, Maricopa, I believe, and, and uh, Peoria. So, I mean, if you're in those areas, uh, some of you probably come out to my meetings whenever I'm out there. Well, some of you may never have, and uh, you're welcome to join us. That's going to be beginning uh, oh, next Wednesday, not not day after tomorrow, but a week from that. And each day or night, I uh, for about five or six days, probably five, I have uh, something scheduled. To speak, and it's open to the public. So if you're in Arizona, anywhere near Phoenix, you probably are within uh, striking distance from uh, any of those places. Uh, though if you are within striking distance, we hope you won't strike us. But uh, nonetheless, you can probably get there if you look at our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thenarrowpath.com is uh, where uh, you'll find us, uh, the announcements. And the, the tab to hit is announcements, and you'll see where to, those meetings are being held. And, of course, uh, on February 7th, which is just before that, uh, I'm going, or actually one of those nights, isn't it? I'm going to be uh, having the Zoom meeting that we have every first Wednesday of the month. So uh, anyone can be part of that anywhere in the world. So if you're interested in those things, go to thenarrowpath.com, look under announcements, and under those dates, you'll find those details. All right? So let's not uh, wait any longer to talk to our callers. We're going to talk, first of all, to Steve from Eatonville, Washington. Steve, welcome. Yeah, good afternoon. I have two questions. I'd just like to ask them both and then get off the air. But the first question is, I just recently <clears throat> recited the entire book of Romans to a church, and some members, a member came up to me one time, one after the thing one time, and said, uh, you do know, you do realize that the Bible was written, including the New Testament was written, for us, but not to us. And I said, well, I sort of know that. I've heard people say that, including yourself. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say that. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> he was mainly also specifically talking about Romans 13, where where he says that in this country, we have no power over us. Only God's over us. We, are, we the people, are our own power. And I said, I sort of can see where you're coming from. I sort of agree with that. But I also disagree because we elect these people to be over us, and right. they're they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> anyway, it is true that they are beginning to really overstep their bounds, and they are neglecting to do the very one thing that they're supposed to do, which is yeah. punish criminals. They aren't doing that anymore. So anyway, my my question is just: Doesn't Romans 13 exactly apply to this us also? I mean, exactly. I mean, not just for us, but to us to this country also. My second question is, uh, did I hear you once say recently that 
or did I hear a caller say once recently knew a firm that uh, dispensationalism is actually beginning to sort of fall through the cracks a little bit? And it's sort of hard. For, it's beginning to sort of be hard for me to be at the church I go to, a dispensational church, not be able to voice my own opinion, like on stuff like on Facebook, like I always used to do. Just being stuff, uh, being being muffled like that. Sort of being hot. I'm beginning to wonder really what to do. All right. Thank you very much for your answers. Thank you. Uh, okay, Bye. Steve. Yeah. Thanks for your call. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Well, first of all, Romans 13, of course, is the famous chapter where Paul says that there are no authorities except those that are appointed by God. Now, he doesn't say what process God uses to raise them to their positions. Obviously, in many countries throughout history, uh, people have become the leaders of the countries by conquering with their armies the forces that defended previous leaders. And so there have been military coups. Uh, there's, of course, been hereditary dynasties so that a son inherits the throne from his father and so forth. Lots of different ways people come to power. And uh, in this country, of course, people come to power uh, because they're elected, as is increasingly the case in more places around the world, uh, supposedly. Uh, so, I mean, there's lots of ways that people may come to power. Paul didn't say what way they have to come to power in order for this to be true. He seemed to believe that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of people in power. In fact, Daniel said that, that God raises up kings and he brings down kings, um, which I think he said in Daniel 4, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, you know, this is something that God God does. Now, uh, your friend who approached you said, don't you know that Romans is, like like the other parts of the New Testament, is written not to us but for us. Well, okay, but that does mean it's written for us. The principles in it are true. Now, it is also true that the United States has a form of government that did not exist in Paul's day. And that is one where the people elect their leaders and where technically, although it's not stated in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, it's stated in, uh, I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln who said it's a government for the people, by the people, etc. And so um, it's a government by people. It is that. We, we, uh, we choose the leaders, but we choose them to be leaders. That's the point. We don't choose them just to be nothing. We choose them to lead us. And the way our, con our Constitution and our country is set up, um, you know, the, the, in the case of, say, the president, uh, the Electoral College, you know, uh, you know chooses the president. Who, and, but the Electoral College is supposed to be following the, the way the people voted. Uh, the legislators, I think, are more directly elected. But the point is they're, they're, we have our own way that they didn't have in Paul's day of getting these people in power. But once they are in power, they have been put in power. Now, to say they're put in power doesn't mean they're given dictatorial powers or that they can do anything they want to. Uh, in some former governments that were more um, totalitarian or monarchical, sometimes those in power did have dictatorial powers, and it was, you know, the citizens couldn't do anything to stop them. In this country, the offices that we elect people to have actual definitions and boundaries and things that they are allowed to do and things they're not allowed to do. The Constitution does limit the power of the federal government to do only certain things, which means that if we elect people to do something and they violate the Constitution, then they are acting without authority. Now, they may be in a position of authority, but if a person in a position of authority acts in a way that he has no authority to act, well, then, of course, he's acting just as another man in that case. You don't just follow him because he holds an office. 
because in this country, those offices have limited range of authority. Uh, the, the federal government, according to the Constitution, can't do anything uh, that's beyond uh, what, the, what the Constitution enumerates as the powers of the federal government. And, of course, our federal government regularly does many things that are not within its rightful power to do. Now, we can, we can revolt or we can put up with it or we can just pray or whatever. Um, but the truth is, if the government you know, makes laws that are unlawful for Christians to follow, uh, then that government doesn't have that in their authority to do. Um, and therefore, to ignore those those laws is a Christian's duty. Um, we we have particularly lawless leaders at this present time, uh, who obviously do not probably never read the Constitution. I'm thinking, or if they did, it might have been back when they were in high school, and that was you know, 60 years ago for them. Um, but the the point is, uh, we have people who are in leadership. Uh, they don't, they don't have all the powers that a monarch has or an autocrat has. And if they try to act as if they do, well, then they are in rebellion against their own position. They're violating their oath, which was to support the Constitution. And if they don't follow their oath, uh, they are not acting with actual authority. They're, they're pretenders. And therefore, you know, the Christian does not have to obey uh, authorities that are acting outside their sphere of authority. You know, a man cannot arrogate to himself whatever powers he wants just because he holds some kind of an office. I mean, a, a mayor of a city may wish that he could become the dictator of everyone in that city, but that's just not in the job description. And a president may wish that he could be the dictator of the whole country, but that's not in his job description either. And the job description is what defines his realm of authority. So, uh, it, but your friend who said, well, the people are the authority. Well, uh, it, true, but unfortunately the people don't always vote wisely. And then they put people, uh, they elect people to temporary authority to act on their behalf. And when they do, those people do have authority to act within the sphere of, of the uh, office that they hold. As far as dispensationalism failing, you might not know it because a lot of the biggest churches in the country are dispensationalists. But uh, I, 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 don't, I can't really say what the numbers of dispensationalists are now compared to what they were, let's say, 30 years ago. They may be fewer or they may be more. I honestly don't know. But um, there was a, there is a book somebody sent me called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And it does, it does make a case that, uh, you know, dispensationalism has, has crested. It has, it has reached its zenith a while ago, and now it's losing credibility. And this, I think this is based largely on, for example, some of the developments um, – at Dallas Theological Seminary and stuff where now progressive dispensationalism has replaced classical dispensationalism. And progressive dispensationalism is a, a pretty big move away from classical and actually a move in the direction of amillennialism. So there is there's change afoot. And classical dispensationalism probably is a fading, especially since uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, which is the main source of new dispensationalists, is, is, is creating fewer of them than before, I think. So that'd be my thoughts on that question. I don't really, don't really have statistics, so I'm not sure I would be able to say for sure. Another Steve from Lakewood, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Hey, uh, two quick questions. Uh, first one is, 
when you uh, have that debate with Max that's going to be broadcast over uh, a live YouTube channel, I believe you said, or Max okay, said, can, uh-huh. can you can you uh, tip us off to that? Because I'd like to Oh, absolutely. It. Absolutely. It'll, it'll be posted on Facebook. It'll be announced on the air. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my next question is, uh, and you taught me my favorite word, by the way, conundrum. Whenever, <laughs> whenever I go word. through the word and I find something that's a conundrum, I think about you. Anyways, just thought it'd be fun for you to share uh, Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. The Lord came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with the two angels. Uh, they ate probably, you know, noontime, early afternoon with Abraham, and they ate again at Lot's house. Like to hear your comments on that. They process food. Well, yeah. Well, the angels that came along with God Himself, all three of them, there were two angels and God, appeared in human form, and as such, they were able to eat food. Which means, you see, I, I guess there's mysteries that are never explained to us. I don't know what, and I don't think we need to have them explained to us. But obviously, we don't know exactly when when God or an angel takes on a human-like form, and this happens multiple times in Scripture, not just in this passage. Uh, that God took on a human form to wrestle with Jacob. You know, there's other times that uh, the angel of the Lord, which is probably Christ, uh, took on human form in the Old Testament. There's angels that do so from time to time. They're always described as being men, or, or at least having the appearance of men. Uh, my position is that they're probably not all the way down to the genetic level men, but there's no reason for them to be. Genetics, you know, you inherit your genetics from your parents, your grandparents, and so forth. And when God just takes on, or an angel takes on temporary human form, they probably aren't human down to the cell level. But they, it would, I guess we could say what we call the gross morphology of the human body, they assume, and, and apparently uh, that would include organs of digestion, which is perhaps surprising. But I think, uh, you know, I know when Jesus rose from the dead, he ate food with his disciples to prove that he was physical and that he was physically raised and not just a spirit. Uh, and yet Paul does say concerning the belly and food that, you know, God's going to eventually destroy both of them. I mean, the belly is not permanent, but apparently when Jesus in his resurrected body appeared, uh, you know, he was able to eat, and God in the Old Testament appearing as man, and and even angels doing so, apparently are able to eat. Uh, I, But, I, I mean, there's absolutely nothing. We're not told of whether they eventually had to eliminate what they ate. You know, whether they really even were human beyond that, or human-like beyond that meeting. You know, when they walked away and, and Abraham saw him no more, I don't know if God, even maintained his human appearance for any time after that. There's, there, these are mysterious things. I mean, they're, they're mysterious not in the sense that, uh, let's just say Calvinism says it's a mysterious thing how God can foreordain everything that happens, but he still holds everyone responsible for it. That's not mysterious. That's just nonsense. Uh, it, it, it violates the very definition of responsible. But, um, but it's a mysterious thing to say God has done some things that he never gave us much information about, and which, without that information, we can't say much about it. It's it's a mysterious uh, uh, thing to us, because we don't have have enough information. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. Angels, God, Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, are often seen to eat with people. And it does seem like this is in order to relate with people as physical beings, for that moment anyway. 
appreciate your call. Uh, Slavic from South Carolina, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Hi. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all, I want to thank you uh, for your teaching and your ministry. Uh, I've been listening to you for about four weeks now, and I've been greatly blessed by your material. Um, Great. Thank you. I uh, I grew up under dispensational uh, theology, uh, but abandoned the I abandoned the pre-trib uh, rapture view about five years ago. I currently don't don't consider myself a dispensationalist. Um, however, I have been going to a Calvary Chapel church uh, here. Uh, it's about 25 minutes away from where I live. It's in Greer, mm-hmm. South Carolina, and. Um, and you're listening, uh, you know, to the constant teaching of, of the preacher, rapture, and, and other dispensational theology doesn't doesn't exactly edify me. Uh, and I have been going there for for some years now, and I don't know. I just don't know what to do. Uh, if I if I should look for another church or or what? Because you know, I do have have aspirations and a desire to teach. You know, I'm passionate uh-huh. to teach, and uh, and and I know that <laughs> that. I cannot teach uh, what they teach, you know, um, when it comes right. to these, these kinds of views, uh, you know. Well, I, I, was once, yeah. I was once in your position because I came up through the Calvary Chapel movement, too. I was taught under Chuck Smith for five years uh, in my teenage years, uh, or actually from age, age 16 to 21, actually. And, um, and then I was a teacher at Calvary Chapel uh, in Santa Cruz, California, for three years. Uh, although by that time I had abandoned dispensationalism, but this was back in the early 80s before Calvary Chapel had locked down their theology to the point where today, if you believe in a post-trib rapture, you won't be allowed to teach there, of course. And, uh, mm-hmm. but I, but I, you know, when I faced that very dilemma, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll teach what I believe is true, and if that, uh, if that excludes me from Calvary Chapels, uh, well, so be it. You know, I mean, you can't, Calvary Chapel is a big movement, and it's prob- there's probably considered to be some uh, career uh, <clears throat> advantage to a person who teaches there and whose teaching is accepted there. Probably he can become a pastor of a big church someday. Um, that was It was never actually my goal to be a pastor of a church, or especially not of a big church. Uh, my goal is simply to teach what I found to be true in the Bible and and eventually that did alienate, alienate me from Calvary Chapel. I'm not the only person who's faced that crisis. I've, uh, there's a pastor. He was a Presbyterian pastor in Florida who began to question Calvinism. Now, you can't be a Presbyterian without being a Calvinist. And eventually, uh, as he became convinced that Calvinism was not true, he, they, he had to quit his job there. That is, they, they were going to fire him, so he just resigned. Uh, and he didn't, you know, it was his career. He didn't know what he was going to do now. But... Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that any group would be so stuck on a narrow uh, theological uh, you know, sideline that they would not welcome good uh, teaching uh, from somebody who doesn't hold that particular side view. Um, but to Calvary Chapel, dispensationalism is not a side view. It's it's almost their entire identity, and. Uh, and with and with Presbyterianism, of course, Calvinism tends to be a, uh, almost their whole identity. Also, so that would I mean it would make sense if you're not a Calvinist, you don't try to become a teacher in a Presbyterian church. If you're not a dispensationalist, you don't try to become a teacher at a Calvary Chapel. But fortunately, there are lots of people who are no longer wedded to any particular theological 
sideline like dispensationalism or Calvinism who just want to be taught the Bible. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it, you'll find places to do that. It may not be a, a, the best career move if you're hoping to have your career in teaching uh, the Bible. Uh, it might not be a good career move to be uh, alienated from Calvary Chapel because that's really a, a – in Calvary Chapels are big crowds of people uh, who want to hear you teach about the preacher of rapture. Um, but they want you to teach that it's in the Bible when it isn't, and that's the problem. So, uh, yeah, I'm afraid. Well, let me just, all I can do is encourage you that uh, you may have to, you know, you may have to be uh, ostracized from certain groups for your integrity. Uh, And I have been. I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I I actually, uh, you know, it's my own fault. I decided to teach what I believe, and uh, I knew that it wouldn't be welcome in certain places, so I have been. I've become persona non grata in some places, but uh, on the other hand, God opened up doors. I've got plenty of, there's plenty of people out there who want to hear the Bible taught if you can teach the Bible with integrity. So um, I would also say, too, that if you can endure it, uh, staying at a Calvary Chapel is not the worst thing that could happen. I mean, if your pastor's only teaching about end times all the time, and that's kind of what some Calvary pastors do, I could see why you'd want to move on, find someplace that t- teaches the Bible rather than, you know, pet, pet uh, doctrines of, you know, the pastor. But, I mean, lots of Calvary Chapel pastors, they don't only teach that. I mean, they, they teach good stuff, too. Uh, I sat under Chuck Smith even after I was no longer a dispensationalist. And, I, you know, his teaching, I, I still am very, very much indebted to him for much of my Bible knowledge. Uh, uh, I did change my mind on not only eschatology, but some other things over the years. But, but I mean... There's good, there's good teaching there with, along with the bad. If, you, if you're a, a real studious person, you don't have to be, uh, shall we say, dependent on what's said from the pulpit. You can be a, a self-feeder. Now, of course, if you are a self-feeder, some pastors are a little threatened by that. They want, they want you to be fed by them. And if you're a self-feeder, there's always the risk that you might disagree with them on something. And some pastors, not all, some pastors find that threatening. And you may have to move along. But maybe not. If, if, if the pastor's not, if the pastor's teaching other things that are really good, and he just occasionally hits on this end time stuff, um, well, I mean, it, it might be worth staying there. Uh, staying in the church or not might have a lot to do with whether you have good relationships built in the church. I mean, I'd much rather stay in a church where I have relationships with the people that are positive, even if I didn't agree with what the pastor's saying, than to uh, find a church where uh, you know, pastors are more in agreement with me, but the, you know, the, the fellowship's not all that good. So, I mean, you're going to have to weigh that for yourself. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry you're, I'm sorry that people like you and me have to, you know, make that kind of a decision sometimes. It's, um, you didn't mention uh, whether you have a family or not. Do you have a wife and kids? Uh, yes, I have a wife and, and a 10-month-old ten, ten uh, Okay, boy. so. So that, that makes it a little harder to begin, because, again, the, the relationships you have in the church. If you've been in the church for a long time, your wife and you probably have friendships there that you that will probably distrust you and not hang out with you anymore if you, you know, yeah. if you don't go with the party line. You're going to have to start from scratch. I've had to do that more than once. <laughs> you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes God just hits the reset button in your life again, and... Uh, you know, I've had a friend of mine said, boy, God has, has hit the reset button for you many times, Steve. And he's right. Uh, but, uh, 
but you know what? I, I wish I could have been with the same people all my life, but I wouldn't be exactly in the place I'm at now, which is a good place, in my opinion. If I, if I, I mean, so you got to let, you got to take the disappointments with the, with the, with the blessings. But eventually, if you're serving and following God, all the, even the disappointments become blessings, because if you're obedient to God and trusting God. And you're just doing what you know in your conscience God wants you to do. And you're not being intimidated by people and not saying what people want you to say. Uh, then God's on your side, you know. God's going to be on your side. And uh, even what are disappointments to you, uh, you'll, have to, you'll be able to recognize later as his appointments for you. Mm-hmm. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. All right, Slavic. Sorry to hear this is happening for you. God bless you. It's all right. All right. Uh, well, we have a uh, we have a break coming up in a, about a minute or so, and uh, and we have lots of calls waiting, which we're going to take in the next half hour. We have a we have another half hour coming up, but at this point, I uh, don't have time to take a caller before the break. So I'll just tell you that the Narrow Path website has all kinds of uh, goodies there, and they're all for free. Uh, if you didn't notice, we've had our first half hour without any commercial breaks. We'll have our second half hour without any commercial breaks, too, because we have no commercial sponsors. We're listener-supported. And so we don't have to break it up for commercials. And even this is not a commercial. This is here to tell you what you can get for free. If you go to our website, we've got thousands of things there that you can take for free. Many of them, oh, well over a 1,000, are MP3 files of lectures. Uh, and there's also links to other important websites that have all kinds of good stuff. And everything's free there. It's thenarrowpath.com. Now, we do pay a lot of money to air this program on lots of radio stations across the country. Uh, much, much money. And that's the only thing we spend money on. And if you'd like to help us pay those radio stations so we can stay on the air, you could write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California. 92593. Or you can donate if you want from the website, where again everything is free. But if you want, you can donate there at thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. We have another half hour. In a 16 lecture series entitled The Authority of Scriptures, Steve Gregg not only thoroughly presents the case for the Bible's authority, but also explains specifically how this truth is to be applied to a believer's daily walk and outlook. The Authority of Scriptures, as well as hundreds of other stimulating lectures, can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour. We're taking calls from people like you uh, who have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith or who might have a difference of opinion from the host and want to balance comment. This is always welcome here. I would give out the phone number, but our lines are full, and my suspicion is we may not get through all these calls in the remaining half hour, but we might. If it looks like we're going to have time, I will give out the number again, um, and we'll... You know, you can call in. 
At this point, we're going to talk to those who've been waiting quite a while, including Oscar from Mount Vernon, New York. Oscar, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, uh, I was listening to a pastor, and he said something about Hebrews 6, verses 4, 5, 6. Now, he's saying that uh, these verses are not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about the opposite. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. And <laughs> he said that if you could, that means that anybody who could lose their salvation, that means that Jesus would have to come back to earth and die again for your sins. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's a very common, a very common uh, dodge from what Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about. Uh, let me read the passage, and we'll let anyone decide whether that's a good explanation or not. Um, the passage says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away to renew them, that is, it's impossible to renew them to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay, so this, what it sounds like it's saying is if somebody has been enlightened and saved and received the Holy Spirit and all that, and they have fallen away, it says it's impossible to renew them again to, uh, to repentance uh, as they uh, crucify to themselves a flesh, uh, the, afresh the Son of God. So it does, I mean, really, the, the, it would seem we'd be more in danger uh, from taking this seriously of saying that if you fall away, you not only lose your salvation, but you can't return to it. Now, I don't believe it's saying that. But, of course, there's, a, there's two camps that tell us that you can't lose your salvation. There's Calvinism that teaches that if you are really saved, you'll never fall away, in which case falling away here is not really something that's possible if you're really a Christian. And there are others who believe that if you fall away, uh, you know, you're still saved. Once saved, always saved is that doctrine. Now, how does someone argue for those from this passage? Well, first, one way is to say it's not really talking about somebody who is really saved. This is usually the way the Calvinist takes it. When it says, and, and this may be encouraged by the way it read in the King James Version, which wasn't quite, quite the best and clearest uh, translation from the Greek, but they say it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the HM, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again. Now, it's saying, this is what some people say, the Calvinists say. It, well, it's talking about people who were enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, and of the powers that come, but they weren't really saved. It sounds like they got pretty close to being saved, but they didn't quite step over the line. Sometimes they'll say, it doesn't say they were born again. It doesn't say they were regenerated. It doesn't say they were justified by faith. It just says these other things about them. And they also point out that it talks only about them tasting the heavenly gift and tasting the good word of God, which they think means uh, they kind of just kind of were interested in it. They licked it. They nibbled it sort of like a salt lick to see what it tastes like, but they never really indulged in, uh, in, in coming to Christ. Now, this, by the way, is a serious error because the word tasted is used by the same author, the author of Hebrews, that says that Jesus tasted death for every man. 
he tasted death. It says that's that's uh, Hebrews two nine. That's, now Jesus didn't just nibble at death. He didn't just lick it to see what it tasted like. He fully experienced death. And so for the author to say that Jesus tasted death, and these people tasted the word of God, and these people tasted the the, the powers of the Holy Spirit and so forth, it does not sound like he's saying they were just kind of on the outskirts of it, you know, within touching distance. Um, it, it, all the things he says are things that are true of real Christians. And uh, it says they're enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. I don't know of anything in the Bible that would suggest anyone other than born-again people uh, partake of the Holy Spirit. And, and therefore, if, if the writer was saying, well, all of, they did all of these things, but not quite enough to really be saved, then he is very uh, remiss in not clarifying that, because he, he lists five things, all of which describe Christians, generally speaking. And he should have said, but they've done all those things without really diving in. They, they really have not been saved. He should have said that, or else he's definitely, you know, in danger of confusing everybody. Um, but, of course, he isn't confusing everybody. He's telling the truth. He's talking about people who really are saved. And, uh, and so, um, you know, that, that explanation is nonsensical to me. And yet some people hang a great deal on it. Now, the guy you're talking about apparently took another approach. Sounds like he's assuming they are saved. And that's true. They are. But he's probably going with the way the King James renders verse 6. If they fall away. It's impossible to renew them since they're crucifying again the, the Lord. Now, this is an, a second way that once they'd always say people take this. They say, well, the writer is talking about people who are saved. But he's saying if they would fall away, that would be essentially crucifying Christ again. And since Christ cannot be crucified again, they obviously cannot fall away. So that he's, strike, he's saying people who've had all these uh, salvation experiences... If they could fall away, it would mean crucifying Christ a second time. And, and the writer of Hebrews is very clear in chapter 10 that Christ died only once for all. He's not going to be crucified a second time. And therefore, it's saying, of course, they can't fall away because it would involve the second crucifixion of Christ, which is impossible. This is what he's apparently saying. The problem with that is in the King James Version where it says, if they fall away, is a mistranslation. In the Greek, it says, and have fallen away. So it's not talking hypothetically. Well, if they could, then, you know, that'd be crucifying Christ. No, it, in, in the Greek, it's saying these people have had these experiences and have fallen away. And it's impossible to renew them uh, again to salvation. And then, uh, you know, in, in our English version, it might say something like because they crucify again or since they crucify again uh, for themselves, the Son of God. Actually, in the, uh, in the Greek, it just says, crucifying again. That is, it's impossible to renew them to repentance, crucifying again the Son of God. That is, while they're doing that, it's impossible to renew them. They'd have to stop doing that. They'd have to, they'd have, to have a change of uh, position and, and stop crucifying Christ. Now, he's not saying that Christ is literally crucified again. He says they're crucifying to themselves Christ again. It's as if, uh, you know, he didn't die. It's, it's as if for them, he's, he didn't die. They're, in fact, they're putting nails in his hands again. They're crucifying him themselves, as it were, for themselves. 
they're participating with the world that hates and, and rejected Christ. And that's what he's saying. Now, that, you know, to say that this passage is somehow affirming once saved, always saved, is to take one of these two approaches, both of which fail, both, both of which fail. And, uh, and the problem they have, of course, is not only that this passage teaches the loss of salvation, but several other passages in Hebrews do, because Hebrews has at least five uh, passages where the writer goes off and warns Christians about the danger of losing their salvation. So you can't just take chapter 6 and these verses say, well, we, we can explain this away. It might be ridiculous the way we explain it, but we can do that, and then we, we've removed the problem. Well, from that verse, maybe, but not from the rest of the verses. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer says, Beware, brethren, now brethren are Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, he says there's a danger that you, brethren, could have an evil heart of unbelief and depart from the living God. Now, you can't depart from God and still be a Christian. In fact, Calvinists say a Christian cannot depart from God. But uh, there's a danger there that is warned against. Now, if someone says, yeah, but the brethren, that doesn't necessarily mean born-again Christians. Well, it does. Because uh, 12 verses earlier, when he opens the chapter, he addresses the same people. He says, therefore, holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he calls them holy brethren, partakers, uh, you know, with them of the heavenly calling. And he says, beware, although you're holy, even though you're partakers of the heavenly calling, you've got to beware of there being an evil heart of unbelief that would cause you to depart from the living God. So um, the pastor that told you that, uh, he's, he's uh, giving a talking point. There are talking points that people in different theological camps use when scriptures do not accommodate them. And they'll try to find some very imaginative way of getting around those scriptures or reinterpreting them. But, you know, I don't think that the, I don't think the Bible is written for us to find uh, clever ways to make it say something different than what it actually says. I think a faithful reading of the scripture would be that to seek to understand what it does say. And if our theology has a problem with that maybe our theology should be changed instead of our interpretation of the passage. Okay, let's talk to uh, Jim from Bremerton, Washington. Jim, welcome. Yes, hi, Steve. Love hi. what you do. Uh, Thanks. I have a question about John 4, 38. Uh, seems like you can take it a couple of different ways. I was just wondering if you could explain it for me. Okay, I'm turning there. John four thirty-eight. you say? Yes. It says, Jesus said, I sent you to reap for uh, that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's saying that they're, the disciples are going to reap. They're going to harvest here. And they did. There's a, there's a huge harvest of the people from the town who, who became you know, fault, you know, believers in Christ in the next few verses. So this is a harvest. And, and Jesus is speaking more generically, too. There's going to be other harvests that the disciples will be taking place in, but they are coming to, uh, they're harvesting the fruit that was actually sown by earlier generations, the prophets, you know, uh, the, the teachers of, of, of God's word, the law, and so forth, had, uh, you know, planted the seeds, had prepared the ground for them, uh, and therefore, you know, they're going to come and 
get the benefits of it. Because in the previous verse, he says, in this the saying is true. One sows, that, that is one, one plants seeds, and another one harvests or reaps. So he said that's a saying. It's a common saying. And, and I think what it's, what it's getting across, it's a proverb. The idea is that sometimes what you labor on, you will not live to see the, the outcome. But someone else will. You know, one sows, another person harvests. So it was like a proverbial saying. And he's saying this is really true in, in this case, too. You guys are fortunate. Remember in another place, Jesus said to his disciples in, in Matthew 13, I think it was, he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Because many prophets and wise men have longed to see what you see and to hear what you hear, and they did not. In other words, the prophets and the wise men, they were planting the seeds. They were hoping to see that harvest. They didn't live to see it. But you're blessed because your eyes are going to see it and your ears are going to hear it. You get to enter into, you know, the harvest. You get to enter into the labor at a late point, late enough that there's been a lot of work done previously. And so someone else has sown and you're going to, you're going to harvest what, what they started. So that's what I believe he's saying there. Okay, like the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the New Covenant is, was something that Jeremiah had predicted, and so the, the faithful Jews were looking forward to that. So when Jesus came and brought it, they seemed to be uh, prepared for it because of the earlier labors, of, like the prophets, like Jeremiah. Okay, let's talk to Cheryl from Lincoln, California. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much. Um, uh-huh. I'm listening to your verse-by-verse teaching on Matthew, and okay. as I'm going through it, I'm grieved and I'm overwhelmed by how often I fall short of Jesus' teaching. Um, I, I'm just wondering, um, I know there's no way that I can live up to the standard that Jesus teaches without his help, but does the falling short negate my salvation? No. No, if if you fell short because you made no attempt, then that would strongly suggest you're not saved. That is, in other words, if you if you didn't care whether you're obedient to Jesus or not, if you were like quite a few people in the church who you tell them they're not doing what Jesus wants, and they just say, well, nobody's perfect. I'm saved by grace. Don't talk to me about obeying. You know, it's it's clear they have no interest in doing what Jesus said. Well, they're not they're not saved. Obviously, a person is only saved if they've embraced the lordship of Christ. And doing that means you recognize he's the Lord, he's the king, and, and, and you're broken and repentant over having been so rebellious against him, and now you're turning around to follow him now to be obedient. Now, once you've turned around to be obedient, obedient which I, I'm pretty sure you have just by what, the concern you're showing about this, yeah. uh, you know, once you've done that, you find that obedience uh, is very rarely perfect obedience, and that doesn't surprise him. You know, it says in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. You know, he's, it's not like he's surprised when we fail. I, I think he's pleased that we want to obey. I think he's pleased that we've made it our goal to obey. If we make it our goal to obey and still fall short, God's, God doesn't judge you by, you know, how, how weak you are, uh, but on where your heart's at. Um, so it's, there's a, a huge difference between people who don't obey because they never intended to and those who, despite full intention of being obedient in their lives, they fall short out of weakness or whatever. Um, There's a very different categorization there. So, I mean, even James said in the book of James, we all stumble in many things, and he was 
the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So, you know, if he stumbled too, uh, you know, so do we. The thing is, though, we don't want to stumble. Uh, a person who who lives in sin without regret is not converted, and it's, they're not stumbling. They're they're walking in sin. Walking and stumbling are different things. A person who's walking in sin, that's what they want to do. A person who's a Christian wants to walk in the Spirit, wants to walk in love, wants to walk with Christ, wants to walk pleasing in His sight, and so forth. But stumbles into sin, which is is an irregular thing. Now, I mean. If you're truly devoted to Christ, if you've asked him to fill you with his spirit and you're endeavoring to meditate on his word day and night, be obedient to it, sure, you're going you're to have times when you stumble. I mean, we all stumble, James said. But you'll yeah. repent and you'll keep going the direction you're on. And before long, you'll be surprised as you look back over your life, the trajectory has been toward holiness and obedience because you that's what you've intended and that's what God is growing you toward. But... Uh, and, and don't be surprised that even until, until the day you die, if you grieve your sins when they occur, right? as if you stumble again and say, rats, I wanted to not do that again. Uh, well, that just means your heart is still in the right place. Because if your heart's not in the right place, you'd stumble and not care. I guess that's true. I just thought after over 46 years of walking with the Lord, I'd be you think so? better but, at it. Uh, yeah, well... I I would imagine, I mean, I don't know you, but I would imagine that you're probably better at it than you give yourself credit for it if you've been trying to follow oh, him for 46 years. Uh, you're, the, the more Christ-like you become, the more a failure stings and you notice it. I mean, um, mm. you know, it's, it's, you're going to be, you're going to grieve it probably more. As you become more holy, the failures are going to just stand out like and glaringly more against the backdrop of your generally obedient life. And so, you know, you're going to always say, man, how could I keep falling like that? And yet you look back and say, I really don't fall anywhere near as much as I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or yeah. something like that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Or you might even in some areas. I mean, there's different there's different failures and different weaknesses that God works on at different times in your life. You, you probably are much improved over over in very many respects, though there might be some besetting you know, difficulty that you keep stumbling into. And you think, man, I don't think I've improved over 46 years in this. Well, you probably have, but if you haven't, uh, it may be because God's been given the victory in other areas, and, and that victory is still to come. You just keep fighting the fight and walking in the Spirit. Okay. I can do that as long I as I know that. I'm still with the Lord. Amen. 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 Well, if your heart is the Lord, you're with the Lord. Well, thank you, Steve. Okay, Cheryl. God bless you. Dale from Maine, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, this is Steve. Hi. I just got a question for you. I okay. Was, I was up here in my bedroom trying to go to sleep, and I thought I was having some ice cream, so I went downstairs to get some ice cream. I left the radio on. When I came back upstairs, the radio was turned off. It's when, like, when I watch YouTube things on that, God's... I'm having a hard time understanding you. You're kind of mumbling a little bit. So, so what is your question? We don't have a lot of time. When when God is is with you, does He control things like the radio and TV and stuff like that? Uh, not generally. I mean, I will say this: I've heard some people 
uh, that, that God seemed to have providentially caused them to turn on the TV or the radio, and it saved their lives. For example, a friend of mine who went through my school, uh, before he was a Christian, he was feeling suicidal. He was planning to kill himself. He woke up that morning that he was planning to do the deed, turned on the radio, and Chuck Swindoll was on. And something that Chuck, Chuck Swindoll said brought him to Christ and, and saved his life. And uh, so I, that sounds providential to me. Uh, pastor Raul Reese, who's a Calvary Chapel pastor, was a, a thug before he was a Christian, uh, a fighter and a crook and things like that. And and he was going to kill his wife because he thought she was cheating on him, which she wasn't. But he got his shotgun out, and he was waiting for her to come home. And he was going to blow her away. Then he was going to blow himself away. That was the plan. And uh, while he was waiting for her to come back, he turned on the TV, and Chuck Smith was preaching on the TV. And, and Raul Reese got saved. And he and his wife are alive today because of that. So uh, it does seem like, you know, although I don't think God turns the TV on for you or changes the channels for you, uh, sometimes... You know, us turning it on, uh, us changing the channel, sometimes I would say it, it looks like God is somehow guiding us in that. I don't think he's manipulating the equipment, but I think he's perhaps, without our even realizing it, he is uh, apparently, you know, moving us to do certain things that we don't know need to be done, but he does. David from New Mexico, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Uh, I'm glad to get on. This is my first time calling. I just wanted to ask you if you know much about uh, the the Christian program called The Chosen. I've never seen it, but it seems to me like I've heard that there's some controversy in regard to either how it was made or who made it. And uh, I also know that I heard an interview with the guy who plays Jesus uh, oh. that he was involved in some kind of occultic practice while he was making the Jesus Revolution. So I was just wondering if you know anything about the series, if you would recommend it. Right. I don't spend much time looking into that series. I've watched the first season. It didn't thrill me. It didn't disgust me. It just didn't. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just not a fan. I'm not against uh, the, the, the series at this point, the parts I've seen. Uh, my, my, my problem with it is it's not really, at least season one, doesn't seem to be so much about Jesus as it is stories about the disciples and their background. And it's all speculation because we don't have any information in the Bible about their background. So, so you know, the series, as near as I can tell, is about 90% uh, made up fiction. And uh, it, they kind of interweave some of the things that are in the Bible with it. But it's, it's primarily a focus, it seems, in the first season. I, I haven't watched the second or anything. And the first season seems to be mainly about the disciples. It's all it's all imaginary. Uh, I, I'm not interested in Bible-based uh, dramas that are imaginary. I, I don't mind ones that are faithful to Scripture. But again, I'm not ragging on it. I mean, Jonathan Rumi, I think, is a sincere believer. He's a Catholic, and he's a he's a Catholic. Uh, he sees some things differently than I do as an evangelical. But I think he loves the Lord. I don't know what kind of stuff. He is said to have been involved in while making the Jesus Revolution film uh, playing Lonnie Frisbee. But, uh, I've, you know, I've heard people rag on him. I, uh, some people actually rumored that, that The Chosen was being made by Mormons. But I've heard that totally denied, That's, that Mormons did not make it at all. So, I don't know. You know, I would say, even if the Mormons did make it, if the content was pleasing and, well, you know, faithful, I don't care who makes it, you know. Um, the Mormons have made some beautiful uh, paintings 
uh, of Jesus and things like that. That I, I mean, the fact that Mormons made them don't make me hate the paintings. And so, you know, if they depict Jesus uh, well, then um, I wouldn't care if it was Mormons who were doing it. The problem is, of course, Mormons don't have exactly the same views of Jesus as evangelicals do. And if they if they portrayed him wrongly, uh, I wouldn't like it. But I don't like it when evangelicals portray him wrongly either. I don't like. I just like. I honestly don't like very many movies about Jesus. There's one I really liked, and it's very unusual for me to say that. And it was the one on the book of John. And there's been more than one on the book of John. This is the one where I think Christopher Plummer narrated. And there was nothing nothing in the movie except what's in the book of John. The, you know, the narration was, I think, by Christopher Plummer. The guy who played Jesus did the best job of anyone I've ever seen uh, do it uh, in a film. I quite liked it. Uh, most Most Jesus and Bible movies... Mm, they usually don't stick with the Bible closely enough for my tastes. And the, and I would say that The Chosen doesn't stick with the Bible closely enough for my tastes. That doesn't mean I think it's uh, hurtful. I just think, you know, if you're going to tell a true story, why don't we tell it the way it really is instead of having like 95% imagination uh, in the writing of the script. But some people like that, I, it's not my not my kind of thing. But I don't dislike Jonathan Rumi. I think he does. I think he does a good portrayal of Jesus. Second, second only to the guy who did the Gospel of John uh, movie, uh, which is called the Gospel of John. I think Jonathan Rumi is, uh, plays a good Jesus too. Um, I just wish, I just wish there was more about Jesus and, and have him only saying things that either Jesus said or are agreeable with what Jesus said. That'd be nice. Anyway. Um, we're out of time, sorry to say, but those are my comments on, on, on The Chosen. And we're really out of time for today's program. You've been listening to The Narrow Path, but we're on Monday through Friday, so we've got four more broadcasts this week. And again, I'm coming to Arizona to speak five times, uh, beginning, I think it's on the 7th of February, or the 8th, on the 8th of February. And so, um, you know, if, you wanna, if you're in Arizona and want to join us, go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Look under announcements, and you'll see where we're going to be. You can also donate there if you want to, thenarrowpath.com. We are listener supported. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you'll tune in again tomorrow so we can continue this discussion. God bless you.